No one can make you feel small without your, permi- without your permission. Eleanor Roosevelt said that. No one can make you feel small without your permission. I want to talk to you tonight about living free from rejection. Someone dismisses your great idea. Someone you had a crush on says, actually, I just want to be friends. Someone you once loved very deeply tells you that they don't love you anymore. You don't get a job offer again. A university turns you down. A parent doesn't show any interest in you. A child that you've brought up walks away. A friend for years suddenly cuts off their friendship with you. And you don't understand why. A pastor that you've loved and trusted rejects you. A church that you've been part of feels as if it turns its back on you. What do you do? Life has such things happening to all of us from time to time. Rejection is part of becoming a full human being. Learning how to deal with the decisions of others not to give you a job or not to pursue a relationship with you can, if we allow them, help us to be stronger people, better people, clearer. But sometimes we end up stuck in a cycle where we feel as if we are always rejected because we have been. We feel as if everyone is against us. And we always end up alone We're never good enough. Maybe we've been told all our lives that we were an accident. We're the ones at the end of the selection in school for the sports team that nobody wants. And slowly over time, a cycle of looking at the world begins to shape in our heads and in our hearts if we're not careful. We see rejection everywhere we go. And we end up believing that it's part of our core identity. It's a deep part of us. So we start describing ourselves as rejects. Or we somehow think we deserve rejection. What might God want to say into some of those things tonight? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, with me to John chapter 10, I beg your pardon, John chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 10, down to verse 12. You'll leave your Bible open, we're going to read several parts of Scripture tonight. John chapter 1, verse 10, talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come as a light into the world, that people have rejected And we read this, Jesus, he was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, 
and his own people did not accept him. Some versions will say rejected him. But to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who are born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. As a little boy, he had tennis rackets tied to his arms whilst he sat in his high chair. His father made mobiles for above his cot of tennis balls from before he was born, and they hung there every night. The only videos that he was allowed to watch, the only cartoons that he was allowed to watch involved people playing tennis. His father strapped the rackets to his arms and made him move around with them during the day as soon as he was able to walk. He played his first professional, not professional, his first competition when he was four. And he hated tennis as a result. His name, Andre Agassi. He hated everything that was happening to him. He hated the pressure that was being put on him. And he grew up sensing that if he didn't perform properly, if he didn't get the game right, if he didn't win, then he'd end up being a failure. You can read his story in one of the best autobiographies you'll read of the last 15 years. It's called Open. He resented his dad, and then he started to get driven by this desire to prove his dad that, to prove to his dad that he was worth something. So he became one of the late 20th century's greatest tennis players. He married Steffi Graf, but he soon realized that all the success and all the plaudits and all the um, accolades and all the championships and the trophies and the money and the influence weren't enough. Because deep inside him, he was living with a sense that he was never good enough. And he'd been rejected. Evidence of rejection in our lives can be seen both occasionally and regularly if we are thinking in a wrong way about it. Sometimes it evidences itself in rebellion. Sometimes it evidences itself in projected personalities, pretending to be someone that we aren't in order to be accepted. So we have a public life and a private life. Problem is we end up spending so much energy on the public life, we've no energy left to be ourselves. Sometimes rejected people reject others so that you don't get rejected first. People that struggle with rejection, and you might know someone, or you might be that someone, have a deep insecurity in their relationships with other people. They always need to be told how much they're loved. They're, 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 not as, they're only ever as good as the most recent success. They need to fit in or be accepted by others and to be part of everything. They're often marked by a sense of self-pity. Why does this always happen to me? They blame other people for what goes wrong and they develop a victim mentality. Sometimes people living with deep rejection can't receive criticism at all. I'd like to talk to you about that sermon, pastor. And somebody, a pastor who has a deep issue around this will not hear what you're saying. It's their weakness, not yours, because they take it personally. Let me give you an idea of how we could do things better 
uh, pastor. Maybe your boss, you've suggested something to her or to him and he has reacted badly. People that live with rejection at the core of their being live in an environment where they just don't feel loved and they don't fit in, you see. They can blame God. They can blame others. Why did God give me this big nose? Why did God make me so short? Why did God not give me a better physique? They can have a sense of pride that says, how dare you make a judgment about me? Sometimes they can be very opinionated people and they need to be right about everything. Ever being in the company of somebody who's right about everything? You don't want to spend very much time in their company, do you? They can feel worthless, they can feel insecure, they can feel hopeless. And if you are a person like that, and I have been this person, I'm trying to work out in my heart tonight, and I'm finding it very difficult whether I should tell you some of my story. And if I do, then we will go offline. But I'm, please pray for me that I make the right decision about that. But if you're like this, then there will be, or there may well be, someone in your life whose approval matters far more than it should. You need them to tell you that you're good at something. You need them to tell you that you're beautiful. You need them to tell you that they love you. And the way you handle their rejection is not only a display of their hold on you, but also of how much you are letting them shape you. In the words of Eleanor Roosevelt, you're giving them permission to make you feel small. People that live with a deep-seated sense of rejection can feel envy and jealousy and hate. And they don't know what to do with it because it's rooted in the rejection, you see. They run away from confrontation because they don't like it. They're fixers. Fixing things, fixing people, fixing situations, fixing everything. Making sure that everybody knows that they have fixed it. Because then you'll realize that they're worth it, you see. They don't like things not being done. Am I describing anybody? Don't put your hand up. And of course, the worst forms of rejection end up when we reject ourselves. And some carry marks on their arms or their legs to prove it. How do you deal with it? How do you get rid of it once and for all? It's not a new thing. Turn back in the Bible with me for a moment to 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's a story of David, a young, vibrant, successful ruler in Israel, returning home. He's come back from a battle. I'm going to read from verse 6. As they were coming home, everybody got it, I can still hear pages, I should pause. As they were coming home, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they made merry, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was angry, very angry, for this saying displeased him. 
He said, they have ascribed to David tens of thousands, and to me, they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on. That means he intently watched him. The next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul threw the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And David marched out and came in leading the army. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for it was he who marched out and came in leading them. It's a story of a man who compares himself to the wrong thing. Saul compares himself to David and ends up resenting him. He'd rather they both failed than David was better than him at something. That sense of rejection is, is as old as the human story. The first brothers that we read of in scripture, Cain and Abel, one resented and rejected the other. And so conflict and murder and death and sorrow were born. I think we can often feel the deepest rejection from those who are closest to us. The powerful verse in Psalm 55, verse 17, 12 to 14, says this, it is not enemies who taunt me, I could bear that. It's not adversaries who deal insolently with me. I could hide from them, but it's you my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, with whom I kept pleasant company. We walked in the house of God with the throng. Over the years as a pastor, I've had to deal with marriage breakups a lot. Such a difficult thing for a family to go through doesn't just affect the husband and the wife, it affects the parents, it affects the children, it affects the grandchildren, it affects brothers and sisters, it affects anniversaries and birthdays and Christmases and Easter's for the rest of your life. And one of the reasons that it is so profoundly difficult, and some of you have walked this, is because you had such a deep relationship with them in the first place. And then it's broken. Of course, you don't have to be married to have gone through that depth of relationship. Maybe you've worked with someone, you've served with someone, you've been alongside someone at university, you've a deep friendship and it gets fractured. You had a relationship romantically with someone and they broke it. No wonder you feel broken on the inside because you've opened your heart to them, you've trusted them, you've, you've let them see you vulnerable and naked if you like. And then you feel as if they've rejected all of you. How do you get over such things? I want to give you just a few simple principles that I think can help. And the first one is this. You are loved and accepted by God. Ultimately, all rejection is rooted in a misunderstanding of our identity. We think that someone else determines it. A mother, a father, a teacher, a pastor. 
an elder, a small group leader, a colleague, a child. Nobody gets to determine your identity except God. And when you discover that reality, it transforms your life. That's why I read at the beginning, John chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Jesus came to his own, and his own rejected him. But to as many as received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Children not born of flesh and blood, but of God's spirit. If you are going to get over your rejection, you need your identity to be rooted in something other than yourself. You need it to be rooted in something other than what your colleagues say about you or your friends say about you. In fact, you need it to be rooted in the deepest, most profound truth or reality that is possible. And in Christian theology, that truth, that reality is what God says about you. If there was a pecking order, he's at the top of it. If there was a seniority needed, he's the one at the top. And here's what he says about those who trust in him. You are mine. I love you. I welcome you. I embrace you. I draw you into my family. I allow you to be part of my um, created purposes in the world. I will protect you and nurture you and hold you. I give you the invitation. The first step towards overcoming rejection is believing, allowing yourself to believe, stepping into the reality that God loves you. Nothing is stronger than that. Nothing is more powerful than that. Nothing is more life-giving. Nothing is more liberating. In Romans chapter 8, if you'd like to turn with me to it, Paul is trying to help the believers in Rome understand this deep and this profound reality. And here's what he says to them. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it's verses 15 to 17, I really want to emphasize, but the whole chapter is powerful. I'm going to read the first half of it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Since the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, 
We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. When you realize that you are loved and accepted by God, it changes everything. Why is it so important that Christ sits at the center of this? particularly when it comes to rejection. Well, think again about John chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. He came to his own and his own rejected him. But to those who believed in him, he gave the power to become sons and daughters of the living God. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men. He has carried not only the rejection of him, but your rejection on the cross. He's taken all of the rejection that the world could throw at him and he has absorbed it. He's carried it away. And he offers us life by his spirit in a different kind of way. All those words spoken over you, all those things said about you, all those crushing comments, all those actions and attitudes, all that fear and anxiety and pressure and self-loathing and hatred drawn into and carried on the cross. No wonder it sits at the center of our worship. No wonder we've just sung, may I never lose the wonder of it. God's love means that we're adopted into his family. 1 John 3, 1. He seated us with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. We are blessed through Christ, Ephesians 1.3. Through Christ, we have been made righteous and right with God, allowed to be in his family, Romans 3.22. We have a clear conscience before him. We can stand before him with our heads held high, Hebrews 10.22. He's taken our sins and removed them from us as far as the east is from the, east is from the west, Psalm 103, verse 12. He's chosen not to remember our failures and our brokenness and our shame. Hebrews 8, 12. We are loved with the same love that God has for his son, Jesus Christ. The father loves me as much as he loves his son. How can that be? John 17, verse 23. I love one of the Psalms. It says this, Psalm 27. This is the depth of the assurance of acceptance you can have in God. Listen to this. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. If my father and mother reject me, God won't. Living free from rejection involves accepting that. It's offered to every one of you here and via the internet. Secondly, it involves understanding that you've got nothing to prove. There's no test you have to pass here. People that live with rejection are often perfectionists. They seek the approval of others. The appearances of how they behave and live are so important to them that they get themselves tied up in knots because they think, actually, I've got to prove my worth 
I've got to prove my value. I've got to prove that you're making a right decision in loving me or in accepting me or in welcoming me. And if I don't prove it, then it's all going to go. And they carry it into their Christianity. Saved by grace through faith, living out of a sense of God might lose his temper with me and say, I don't really like you. Do you know tonight is my 50th sermon here in Dundonald Elam. Can you believe that? I can't believe it. This is my 50th sermon as your pastor. In one of my first sermons, I said here something along these lines. Do you know what? Let me just remind you something, church. This is what I said. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. Somebody leaving church that morning said to me, it was a lady. She said, I've been a Christian for 40 years. And this morning, for the first time, I realized God quite enjoys my company. You've nothing to prove. If God had been the father in the song, tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree, there would have been an awful lot more ribbons. God is your vindicator. God is the one who will look after you. God is the one who has accepted you. His voice is louder than every other voice. His approval matters more than every other approval. When you get that, when you realize you have nothing to prove to him, you can't disillusion him, you can't disappoint him, you can't kind of put your relationship with him and he's not going to turn around and say, well, you're not what I expected you to be. When you realize that, you discover that it's not your job to get people to like you. When we put our acceptance in God, when we realize that we've nothing to prove, we can relax. Not everything about you is likable. Not everything about me is likable. Ask my wife or my children or me. Sometimes we know our greatest weaknesses, we know the greatest flaws in our own character. I think sometimes we also spend far too much time trying to explain them away instead of allowing God to do something with them. When you put your acceptance in God, you free yourself from constantly striving to be all things to all people and from the utter exhaustion of trying to get people to understand you. God is your vindicator. He knows your heart. If you struggle with what people think of you tonight, give your struggle to him. Trust him. Thirdly, your ultimate worth, your purpose, comes from God. Not what other people think or say about you. He treasures you and prizes you. When he looks at you, he smiles. As I've said once before from this pulpit, if God had a mantelpiece, your picture would be on it. If God carried a wallet, he'd pull it out to show you, to show his friends pictures of you. He loves you completely now. Your worth isn't determined by your status. It's not determined by your relationships with other people. It's determined by him. That can be a hard reality to learn, but it's a life-giving one. When you believe that your worth comes from God, you can stand and look into the eyes of anybody without being ashamed. 
I was born and brought up in Rathcool, as many of you know, and I'm proud of it. I'm always amazed by the number of people that I meet in various places. I also went to a school called Inst, um, and uh, it's a posh school in Belfast. Most of you will know of it. Um, I met a guy in India once, and he said, um, are you an Instonian? I said, yeah. He said, oh, you know, we're like rats. You're never more than eight feet away from an Instonian. <laughs> I've met people who, when you say to them, where are you from? They, let's say they were from Rathcool. They would tell you anything other than that because they're embarrassed or ashamed of where they come from. It's like something they have to leave behind, like a dirty rag that they don't want people to know. Let me just ask you something. Did you get to choose where you were born? Did you get to choose who your parents were? Did you get to choose the family you were part of? So why be embarrassed about it? Why have any anxiety or fear or concern about what people think about you because of where you're from? If they're going to make shallow judgments about you because you come from somewhere that they think is less than where they come from, don't worry about it. Our ultimate worth doesn't come from whether we were born in um, a small house or a big house to wealthy parents or to poor parents. It doesn't come from whether we were born in a Christian family or a non-Christian one either, by the way. It doesn't matter whether we were born to a mum and dad that were divorced or married. It doesn't matter whether uh, none of the circumstances around us matter. None of them. What matters more than any of that is that God knows who you are. And your worth and your value and your reality comes from him. I think I've told you once before, but I can remember at one point I had to do this kind of posh meeting in um, the Palace of Westminster in London a number of years ago. <laughs> and I was surrounded by lords and peers. They were all awfully posh. And I was having lunch in the Chalmundley suite or something. I don't remember what it was called. It was just a lovely lunch. And one of them, they were talking about where they'd come from as I sat down to talk to them about poverty. And um, one of them was talking about his estate in Wales and the other was talking about his estate in Scotland and somebody else had an estate in the Midlands and somebody had an estate in the North and somebody said, oh, I have an estate um, in Cornwall. I said, well, I, I, I come from an estate. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, eh, which, which estate would that be? And I said, council estate called Rathcool in North Belfast. <laughs> Oh dear. Fourthly, and this is hard to say to you, but it's true. You can choose what you do with your feelings. You can choose what you do with your thoughts. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, destroy every argument and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. Just because you think it doesn't mean you have to say it. I wish we would discover that. You don't have to say everything you think. Think of how many relationships could have been mended if we just shut up. The negative thoughts and feelings we encounter are arguments and obstacles that hold us back often to the life that God has for us. And we can learn to limit them. We can learn to control them. You're not a beast. You're not an animal of the field. You have a will. And you can use it. You can make a decision. The number of people that I have met who are still stuck in lives that are destroyed, not because they've been destroyed. It's true that they've been destroyed, but they can't let it go. 
They've decided to hold on to the victimhood and the pain, partly because nobody's helped them, partly because it's so deep, partly because nobody's listened, partly because nobody's tried to give them ways out of it, and partly because they've been taught that they can't control how they feel. They can't control what they think. They can't control what they're going through. And their whole life is built upon, predicated upon what they feel. Your life is not predicated on what you feel. It's predicated on what you think. What you believe about yourself shapes who you become. The way we combat all of the rejection that comes at us once we are in Christ, once we have been willing to submit ourselves to him, is to take the thought captive. When something tells me something different to what God says about me, my responsibility is to get away from the thing that's not true and plug into the thing that is true. So when somebody tells me that I'm not acceptable to God, I must reject that and plug into what it means to be acceptable to God. I must allow the truth of what God has given me to speak over me. God has not given me a spirit of timidity or of fear. He's given us a power of love and self-discipline. We can speak God's word over ourselves. We can speak it into our hearts and into our lives. And lastly... Be more patient with yourself. God is at work in your life and he might be slowing you down a bit. Learn to be patient and allow God's healing work to work its way into and out of your life. In the words of Paul, by the renewing of your mind day by day. We've just had a, uh, we've just been involved in a youth camp and loads of our church folk were not just involved in Um, the youth work itself, but they were involved in cooking fish and chips. And if I had seen one text about a pot of curry sauce, I saw 20. (laughs) Having debates about where to find the curry sauce, how to melt down the curry sauce, where to hide it, how to make it, where to serve it, what to do with it, how to heat up the chips, how to... It was great. I don't know how many people were on that little WhatsApp group or Facebook group that was going, but it looked like a lot. And, uh, and toward the end of the week, uh, one of them put on, somebody had said something about this pot of curry sauce and where it could be found and how it could be used and stuff like that. And somebody said, gosh, to be part of this church, you have to have skin like an onion. Well, to be part of any church, you have to have skin like an onion. <laughs> because I have discovered something about God's work in my life. He doesn't do it at the pace that I think is best. He does it at the pace that he knows is best. And he peels back one layer at a time to bring healing and hope into me as I can cope with it. Be patient with yourself. Make a choice. In Andre Agassi's biography, he's asked about his father and he says, I don't actually resent him. Here's a quote from the book. You can't spread who you are without being broken broken first. Sometimes when you've been broken into pieces, you come back and give much more. You see my scars and they're key to making a difference in me and me making a difference in others. You can't have any wounds in this game, he said, that don't leave scars. They never quite heal. But they make you who you are. 
Brothers and sisters, just because you didn't choose your life, it doesn't mean that you can't take responsibility for it tonight. No one can make you feel small without your permission. If you're joining on live stream, we're going to go offline for 10 minutes or so. Because I want to share some of my story with the folk that are here. But I don't want to broadcast on the internet. So God bless you. If we can help you in any way, if we can support you and serve you, and help you to discover the grace and the love and the mercy of Almighty God, then please just contact us. God loves you and he has a plan and a purpose for you. And your identity flows from him, not what other people say about you. Thanks for being with us tonight.